This week's TribCast is sponsored by 2021 Macomb's Business Outlook Series, Focus on the Future, Energy, January 14th, Healthcare, February 4th, Technology and Innovation, February 11th. FRB Dallas Economists, Top Industry CEOs, and Macomb's Expert Faculty. Register today. And Texas Farm Bureau. Get the latest in farm and ranch news, wildlife, and a recap of the day's markets on Texas Ag Today, the only daily ag news podcast in Texas. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio. Do I have to talk you a Do we have to make sense of it? Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for December 23rd, 2020. Uh, my name is Matthew Watkins, uh, Managing Editor for News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. We're recording for you a day early today as we approach the holidays, so if anything happens in the next 24 hours, don't blame us for not talking about it. I'm joined this week by uh, politics reporter Patrick Svitek. Hey there. And politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Good afternoon. Thank you all for, for joining me. I want to start off, we wouldn't normally lead a podcast with the results of a Texas Senate special election race, especially one where the winner we knew all along was going to be a Republican. But this weekend we had a race between Shelley Luther and Drew Springer, and it didn't feel like a normal kind of North Texas special election. Uh, going into the race, many were looking at this as sort of a proxy war, if you will, of, of leaders in the Texas Republican Party. You had Springer as the Abbott-backed candidate and Shelley Luther, the the vocal advocate or the vocal Abbott critic who, you know, was arrested for violating Abbott's uh, uh, shutdown order way back in the early parts of this pandemic, uh, who seemed to have the, if not explicit, then maybe implicit support of GOP chairman Alan West and, and that wing of his party. Patrick, you were covering this. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamic of the race and then you know tell us what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, especially, it became especially heated in the runoff. If you recall, during the first round of this special election, uh, Governor Abbott uh, stayed out of it, even though there was some people who was, you know, all along suspected that he wanted to see Springer win. Uh, but the real big development in the runoff was Abbott getting formally involved, uh, officially endorsing Springer. His campaign uh, sent over a quarter million dollars worth of in-kind contributions to Springer's campaign. And then in the final week, of the runoff, his campaign, Abbott's campaign, funded a, a Luther attack ad on TV in the district, which, uh, you know, as far as I can recall, is the first time that Abbott's campaign has spent, you know, serious ad dollars to defeat a Republican lawmaker since uh, the 2018 primary season, when we all remember he went on, he went after three uh, state house Republicans who he was not too friendly with. Um, so his involvement in the uh, runoff uh, was pretty remarkable, as was the involvement all along of, of Tim Dunn, the, the board chairman of Empower Texans and the uh, kind of hard right uh, mega donor. He, we've discussed this before, but just as a reminder, he uh, loaned Shelley Luther a million dollars before the initial September special election. And then uh, in the runoff period, uh, he gave her directly $700,000, including a $200,000 check that was reported uh, just days before the race. And so he was uh, overwhelmingly bankrolling her campaign and easily her top donor up until the, the final days of the race. And so it really was this um, 
proxy battle between uh, Abbott and um, you know some of his intraparty detractors, as embodied by uh, or as as represented by people like Tim Dunn, and as you as you mentioned earlier, uh, as represented by people like the new Texas GOP chairman Alan West, um, who did take you know as party chairman uh, publicly at least took pains to show that he was staying out of the race and trying to remain neutral. But there's no doubt that his uh, brand of politics. Um, you know, skeptical of shutdowns, skeptical of the executive actions that the governor has taken on the pandemic, that that brand of politics aligned pretty well with Shelley Luther's brand of politics and, and, and kind of the change that her supporters uh, may have wanted to see by voting for her. So it's a fascinating race. Yeah, I mean, you as you pointed out in your story in the run up to the race, there there wasn't a ton of policy daylight between the two. I mean, even though Springer, who's a state representative, uh, a uh, Republican, uh, or uh, yeah, state representative. Uh, even though he had Abbott's support, he he still talked about possibly introducing some legislation, right? Kind of curbing Abbott's powers in an emergency. Am, am, am I am I saying that right, Patrick? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the two of them didn't even really explicitly disagree on um, breaking from the governor on some of his decisions throughout the pandemic. Um, it's just that stylistically or tactically, uh, how they go about, you know, expressing that disagreement uh, was a little different. I mean, Shelley Luther had this very unique experience of, of going, literally going to jail over her refusal to shut down her business due to these orders. Drew Springer, while maybe he also disagreed with how some of the shutdowns were handled, just didn't have that <laughs> unique of a story in his background and didn't have, uh, you know, the ability to say, like, I, you know, I opposed this so much that I was willing to go to jail for it. And so she really had the uh, the Trump card in, in having that experience. But you're right. I mean, Drew Springer also, you know, called on Abbott to fully reopen Texas. Um, he pre-filed some bills for this upcoming legislative session to rein in the governor's emergency powers in times like a, a pandemic. And so he was also seeing that that was um, a resonant issue in this race and one that he couldn't be, um, you know, outflanked by too much on. And I think that he moved pretty smartly in some of these instances to show that he was appealing to those people too, uh, those people who are a little uneasy with this environment that Abbott's created, even if he didn't have something as distinct in his background as, as going to jail to, for the cause. Sure. I think, in, and there's a few different reasons to be cautious about drawing too many conclusions about what this means for the politics in Texas. Uh, I mean, first of all, I think people should be cautious in evaluate, making broad conclusions at any time about, you know, one particular legislative race. But then also it was a week before Christmas, basically. Um, it was two Republican candidates, even though it wasn't a Republican primary, right? Uh, Democrats and, and independents, you know, could vote in this without actually kind of participating in a Republican primary. Um, so, you know, let's, with the caveat of, saying, you know, let's let's be careful here about drawing too many conclusions. Uh, you know, I was fairly surprised by the margin of victory in this race. Springer ended up winning by what were the total numbers? I mean, somewhere around like 13 percentage points, right? Yeah, he won in the in the low teens. I think the final margin may have been 13 points or close to 13 points, um, which I which certainly surprised me. Obviously, I thought it was going to, uh, you know, it was certainly possible that Springer could win. But did not see that wide of a margin coming. Um, you know, we should note Luther had her own vulnerabilities that were uh, millions of dollars, or at least hundreds of thousands of ad dollars were, were put behind to broadcast to voters in this district. She had a very scant 
um, uh, Republican primary voting history. Um, she had some tweets um, back at the beginning of this uh, pandemic period where she was expressing uh, solidarity with Black Lives Matters, uh, Matters protesters in terms of reopening businesses and ensuring the health of businesses. Those tweets were used against her in, in both the first round and the runoff to allege that she was, you know, siding with people who, you know, damage businesses and riot in the streets. Um, you know, obviously a little, a little bit of a political um, distortion there, but I think if you pulled the Black Lives Matter brand in the Republican primary electorate right now. It's not uh, particularly popular. And so she had some some vulnerabilities that were used against her very uh, aggressively. Um, and she certainly had her attacks against Springer when it came to him not, you know, allegedly not fighting hard enough against these shutdowns. Um, she really seized on this drone regulation bill that he pushed last session that was unsuccessful, tried to uh, get that to, try to use that to suggest he was a you know, Chinese communist uh, sympathizer. And so there were a lot of attacks flying in this race, but she certainly had some vulnerabilities um, that I think a lot of voters in that district knew about by the time they got to the finish line. Sure. And so the, the this result, uh, you know, not surprisingly, when you win a race, there's going to be some gloating, particularly on social media, where everyone seems to want to pick a fight these days. And you know, we saw various kind of uh, celebrations um, in Abbott world, people close to Abbott, backers of Abbott, you, you know, proclaiming this victory. Uh, and then we saw the response by uh, the Texas GOP. Um, you know, one, one thing that really caught my eye was a, a, a tweet by a former executive director of, um, I believe, the Texas GOP, Chad Wilbanks. Right. Um, who, you know, tweeted after the victory, uh, why haven't we heard Alan West from the Texas GOP congratulating Springer and uh, Abbott and all this for, for the victory here? Then you see the Texas GOP from the official state GOP account tweet. <laughs> I quote, Chairman Alan West doesn't need to offer his congratulations since Texas get Democrats beat him to it. And then a tweet from a, a Democrat who uh, seemed to be a Drew Springer supporter. Uh, out West then quote tweeted that same tweet and <laughs> referred to himself, you know, what seemed to be in the third person kind of saying the same message. Um, you know, I, I guess it's, it's not surprising, right, to see some sniping in this. This is kind of what Alan West has, has kind of shown himself to be the kind of politics that he wants to play. And these were the kind of politics he said he was going to play when he when he became the Texas GOP chair. But what did you make of some of that interaction that happened on after the election? Look, I mean, I actually thought this was actually a pretty jarring thing for me to see, even by, you know, the standards that Alan West has sat so uh, has set so far for, you know, serving as uh, state party chairman. I mean, we have had state party chairs um, who have leaned into inter-party battles in the past. I mean, people forget that it was just a few years ago, James Dickey, uh, you know, voted to censure Joe Strauss. Um, so we, we've had chairs who, who have gotten caught up in that and have leaned into it in some cases. And clearly up until this moment, uh, before this, this tweet that you're referring to from Al West, he was clearly... Um, you know, a, a fashion himself as a state GOP chair who would lean into some of these these civil war issues um, within the Republican Party. Um, but to see a state party chairman basically come out and refuse to congratulate a, um, you know, a Republican uh, candidate for winning an election in which um, it, it was a resounding victory, 
and his opponent, another Republican, conceded and accepted defeat, um, I thought it was a pretty jarring position for a state party uh, chairman to take. And I think he, you know, really, he's been pushing the envelope, but I think with that statement, um, pushed it a, a little farther than usual. And you saw the blowback on, on social media pretty swiftly, um, not just from people like Chad Wilbanks, um, but from some Republican members of the state house um, who very were very pretty quick to quote tweet that to respond in other ways and say this is you know just totally unbecoming of a state party chairman. Yeah, the vice chair right of the state party, Kat Parks also weighed in. She exactly. made a point. She made a point to chime in and congratulate Drew Springer. I thought that that was um, interesting and maybe a, a bit uh, revealing into how some you know activists in the party are are feeling about the current chairman. Yeah, well, Cassie, I, I actually pulled up that tweet. Um, you know, one of the things that she said was, quote, time for someone to step up and lead right um, when Republicans win, Texas wins. Is is there, I mean, clearly there are some people that are unhappy with the way that Alan West is, is being so outspoken and, and willing to kind of trade barbs with Republican leadership. You know, it's not just Abbott. It's uh, it's the presumptive uh, GOP speaker as well, Dade Phelan. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do we think anything will come of this, you know, or is it going to continue to be sniping? Is there anything that anyone could even really do about this if they wanted to, or is, is this just kind of what, what the party looks like under, in, in, under this current state of division? Well, it depends on who gives, who gives Alan West oxygen going forward. Um, so far, for example, for example, Governor Abbott has chosen to just straight up ignore Alan West um, because he, I would assume he does not see any benefit um, to elevating elevating him any further than he's elevated himself in this broad political conversation that we're talking about. Um, you've had state reps, you know, come out and Republican state reps come out and criticize Alan West. Um, and they've also said that his opinion doesn't matter to them this session and they're not going to be taking orders from the um, from the chairman as far as what legislation gets passed and what doesn't. Um, but at the same time, they're still engaging with him and they're still, you know, giving him, uh, continuing to elevate him, you know, uh, not, I don't, I don't want to say unwittingly, but they're continuing to give him that oxygen. And so I think it really depends on, you know, the, the willingness of elected officials to continue to mix it up with him or, or amp up the rhetoric with him. Um, but I think he's obviously, he's not going to change. and He's going to continue to use this platform very aggressively um, and it's just a question of um, who's who's going to give him that that credibility and who's going to give him that political oxygen uh, to keep him in the conversation. Sure. Let's let's talk just briefly about Abbott's current standing in the Texas GOP. I mean, as you noted early, it's unusual for him to get into a interparty, uh, intra-party race like this. He 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 did it in what was it, 2018, 20, uh, primary 2018, season. yeah, it, it didn't go particularly well that time. He had or at least a mixed record in terms of his ability to swing this. Um, this time it did work out for him. Um, and, you know, I do have to wonder how much of this was driven by the Tim Dunn support on the other side, right? Tim Dunn, uh, the backer of Empower Texans and various other groups, and really a kind of leading voice in a faction that may be a small faction, but a faction of the GOP that um, is 
really willing to kind of speak out against Abbott right now and has expressed their frustration in a way, you know, you see some of the, the empower Texans groups, the, uh, the Tim Dung wing of the party kind of almost talk about Abbott like he's a member of the opposition party, not a fellow Republican. There, you know, there will be, I think, at least a few members of the legislature who might try to take some actions related to what was brought up by Drew Springer in the effort to, you know, risk, pull back some of Abbott's uh, emergency powers during a pandemic, you know, that that is one of the big things that's really driving this conversation is a feeling that he went too far or abused his power to, you know, impose lockdowns. They, they, that faction of the party really doesn't like the mask order that Abbott has, in pla- has had in place for months now. Cassie, I wonder, you, you spend a lot of time talking with legislators. Uh, obviously, it's not uncommon uh, in the Texas legislature or the U.S. Capitol for the executive to kind of wield its power in a way that doesn't consult the legislature. Does this frustration spread beyond that, you know, likely fairly small wing of the party? Is, do we expect to see much of a movement in this upcoming legislature to to address some of these issues? Well, you know, um, my my general sense is if if the House, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking here, like, you know, with a focus on the House, if the, if, if the House wants to take up this issue of of executive powers, they're going to be doing so by by way of, you know, curbing or modifying the Disaster Declaration Act of whatnot. I, I forget the year, quite frankly, of uh, when it was passed, but it's, it's basically, you know, uh, what's written into state law that, that enables, um, you know, the governor's ability to, to circumvent, you know, the, the legislature, uh, you know, during, during times of declared disaster. But beyond that, um, you know, and I, and I mentioned that, you know, I know that the Freedom Caucus is, is talked to, uh, you know, a group of eight or nine members has, has talked briefly about that, but, I, I I do not get the sense that that Republicans are really in the mood to to spend time really uh you know taking shots at the governor uh during this legislative session. What little priorities or what little bills uh will end up making it to his desk? You know they're going to need to have uh uh him on their side, right? That's not going to be um somebody that they're going to want to cross during a legislative session. Is is my uh, take on that? Right. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the. Oh, go ahead, Patrick. I, say, I think you know. Honestly, um, I'm interested to see what Abbott says on this. I, I don't necessarily believe that Abbott is, um, you know, d- you know, deadly opposed to any reining in of executive power. And I think honestly, it would be ahead of the 2022 primary season. I think it would be in his best interest to give a little on this. And so I could see there actually being some momentum behind this, if Abbott comes out and says, yeah, you know what? I mean, I did my best to respond to the pandemic, but now that we're on the back end of this and we have some chance to reflect on it, maybe there are some areas where we can provide um, more of a check on the executive in times like this. And so, I don't know. I just feel like more than anything else, my observation would be that it may be politically smart for him to give just a little on that, um, even if it's you know ultimately symbolic. Um, I don't think it would be uh, terribly outside his interest to do so. Well, sure, and you know, 
running the state during a pandemic is a pretty thankless task, right? You're not going to make everyone happy. In fact, you're going to make a lot of people very angry, as we've learned from Abbott and pretty much every other state executive across the country. So, you know, maybe he would have liked to have shared some of the blame on that from, from the legislature. So I'd like to talk a little bit more about the legislative session, but let's take a break first and hear from our sponsors. Circle. Circle is the app that brings state leadership and influencer data to the same secure platform. Download it today at mycircl.com. And the Texas Tribune. Become a Texas Tribune business member today to support our nonprofit newsroom and the kind of news, events, and analysis that make for a better, smarter Texas. Join at support.texastribune.org slash business. Okay, well, this is the last TribCast of 2020. The year is finally coming to an end, which means when we come back next year, it will be, you know, less than 10 days before the legislative session begins, believe it or not. I want to talk a little bit about what we can expect from that session, but first, Let's do our kind of regular check-in on, you know, what that session might look like in terms of who will be in the Capitol and how will that work. Cassie, we saw an announcement from the big three uh, earlier uh, earlier this week. Can you tell us a little bit about where we stand here and kind of what physically the legislative session will look like? Yeah, so the Capitol is set to reopen to the public on January 4th. It's been closed to the public since mid-March. Um, and as of this afternoon, so 4 p.m. Tuesday, uh, no one really knows what sort of guidance is going to be in place come January 4th. Um, that is a theme that I think you can carry over pretty, pretty loosely into what the legislative session, uh, is going to look like in terms of protocols. Um, we've gotten a glimpse at maybe where, uh, you know, maybe the direction that lawmakers are heading in. Charlie Guerin, House Admin Chair, last week sent a memo to House members and incoming members uh, basically detailing what's going to be allowed and what's not going to be allowed on the first day of session, right? You know, you, you're, have, you're swearing in ceremony, families on the floor. Um, they're basically going to be limiting the number of people. They're going to be strongly encouraging folks to get a COVID test before they come into the chamber. Uh, and then they're going to be requiring masks, right? And they're going to do their best to try to spread everything out. But you are working with 150 members family, friends who want to be there for that day. On the Senate side, uh, you know, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor, uh, was talking to a, a, a group, I think, yesterday about, you know, what, what first day uh, operations are going to look like. And it's largely the same, you know, encouraging, uh, you know, taking a, a, a test um, before, you know, coming into the chamber, um, limiting the number of people that are, that have, you know, uh, that, that are going to be allowed on the floor. Um, but that's really it. Um, obviously part of why we can't really get to the next part of this conversation is because both chambers need to pass sets of rules at the beginning of, uh, each legislative session. And, uh, the house is, is certainly undergoing the process right now of, you know, soliciting input from members, um, unclear whether that's going to translate to anything formal that's released to the public before uh, they the, the chamber takes up its rules resolution, but we're just going to have to see on that. Um, you know, the last component here is you're talking, you're hearing a lot, I'm hearing a lot more about there being essentially three different sets of rules, right? You have the State Preservation Board, which oversees the Capitol, the Capitol grounds. That's chaired by Greg Abbott. Uh, you have the Senate, obviously, you have the House. So there's totally 
uh, a world in which the Capitol State Preservation Board, Greg Abbott, decides to not require tests to enter the building. Uh, but the House decides to pass a set of rules that says, OK, well, before you can come into one of our committee rooms to testify on a bill, you have to have a, a negative test. You know, so there's just going to be, I think, um, I think there's a lot of confusion right now as to where everything stands, just given that you have the ability to have um, three different sets of rules. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess they have however many days left of this year and uh, the first 12 days of January to get it figured out. Sure. And I mean, the other thing I feel like we haven't heard a lot of is what they want to do this session. Uh, we, we've talked multiple times this year about the extremely difficult budget situation that the lawmakers will face. That will obviously be a major component to this. And, and we also know that redistricting will be a big kind of oxygen sucker for the particularly the latter part of the legislative session. But, you know, we haven't seen the um, the Dan Patrick uh, press conferences or the you know, the the big time bills. I remember uh, two years ago when Dennis Bonin was coming in, I think we had already kind of seen, you know, he was making these cups, right, for for, for meetings, talking about now's the time to handle the uh, school finance bill and, and just various different signals like that about, you know, this is what we're going to be working on this session. Patrick, what are you hearing about kind of what those big ticket items will be in 2021? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the big question for sure is, you know, what do people like Greg Abbott, Dan Patrick and Dave Phelan want to prioritize once you get beyond the budget redistricting and COVID relief? And honestly, those three items are all huge issues on their own. And so it becomes a, a question of, you know, what is the what is the political appetite for issues beyond that? And logistically, what is the possibility? I mean, I think there's a lot of talk right now that the the with COVID, at least in the beginning, the capacity of this legislature is going to be severely limited. And when I say capacity, I mean the volume of bills that goes through the process is going to be smaller than usual. The number of hearings that are held is going to be smaller than usual. Uh, there's just going to be a lot less, I think, bandwidth. And so given the, you know, those big issues, you have these logistical hurdles that are probably going to cut down on just the overall legislative capacity. Um, you could have a session where there's not a lot of other big agenda issues. Now, Abbott, for example, has made pretty clear that one issue that he wants to focus on is, is police funding and, and punishing cities that, quote, uh, defund the police, in his view. Um, he's also been talking a little bit about, um, you know, things like provide under the COVID relief umbrella, things like providing, uh, you know, liability protections for businesses, which uh, Congress was not able to get done as part of their latest COVID relief package. Um, so I imagine that becomes an even more salient issue for the legislature. Um, you haven't heard much from Dan Patrick about what his priorities are. Um, you could certainly see one of these these chambers um, you know, whether it's the Senate or the House, I think the Senate, because it is a more conservative body on the whole, would, would probably be the likely culprit here. But you could see one of them taking up uh, voting issues, uh, given all the back and forth over, um, you know, changes to election procedures in places like Harris County before the November election. You could see Republicans prioritizing, uh, you know, something coming out of that. Uh, but we just haven't heard much from them so far um, about what that agenda is beyond those three big issues that I mentioned. Cassie, anything you would add to that agenda? Uh, no, I, I think C-Tech, you know, covered, covered most of it. 
Um, a couple house members uh, have been, you know, talking and, and making um, a push for expanding, uh, you know, rural broadband access in the state. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that that'll be somewhat of an interesting issue. Uh, Taxpayer-funded lobbying, of course, uh, state party, you know, has, has, has pushed that. Certain Republicans are pushing that, um, banning the practice of taxpayer-funded lobbying, I should say. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, as Fitek said, it's it's just your guess is as good as mine in terms of the kind of uh, bandwidth that the legislature is going to have to be able to to take up some of these issues when when all said and done on the the you know the other three issues that that uh, are definitely going to be taking center stage. Sure, and some of that goes back to what you were saying, Patrick, in in the first part of this podcast about how much oxygen are they going to give to the the outspoken members of the Republican Party who might feel emboldened by what happened in the past election and the fact that they stayed fairly quiet back in 2019, you know, uh, if, if there's going to be the Alan Wests or the Tim Dunn's or various other people calling for more, uh, type, you know, quote unquote, red meat type legislation, uh, how willing are the, is that, are the chambers as a whole going to be to engage in those discussions and, and, and have those fights this time around when there's so much other stuff to do? Right. It'll be interesting to see what, specifically within the House Republican Caucus how widespread that emboldened uh, attitude is. This is a sentiment you just alluded to, but I remember in a, a post-election Facebook um, post, uh, Steve Toth, who certainly is one of the more hard-right members of the caucus, said, you know, ahead of this, uh, you know, last election, we were told, let's focus on these middle of the road issues. Let's get school finance done. Let's get property taxes done because you have a very important election coming up. We need to run on some some things that could appeal to the center. And he said, you know, people like me held our tongue a little bit because I understood, um, you know, that this was the, 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 you know, the team effort that was underway at the time to focus on these issues. And he said, now that we're past that election, we, you know, maintain the status quo. Voters apparently agreed with Republican governance. Uh, do we have a little more um, runway here or a little more space to tackle some more, as he would probably call it, bolder conservative legislation. That's Steve Toth talking. I mean, it'd be interesting to see, again, how emboldened uh, of an attitude other members have. But I think that's certainly a, you know, a discussion out there. Definitely. It will certainly be an interesting session no matter what. I think that wraps things up for us today. The final podcast of 2020. Thank you to Patrick and Cassie. Thank you to our uh, producer, Michael Ray. And I'm pulling up our sponsor list right now. Thank you to our sponsors, the Macomb School of Business, the Texas Farm Bureau, Circle, and the Texas Tribune Business Membership Program. We will see you next week. I hope everyone has a happy holidays, a happy new year. Or not, we will see you next year, not next week. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do I have to talk you